Hey, everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. We have three guests this week, three great, great conversations. First up is Mark Fainaruwada, the ESPN investigative uh, reporter, obviously one of the foremost sports investigative reporters in the country. And we go 20, 25 minutes or so on his piece about Bob Costas and NBC and Bob Costas being pulled off the Super Bowl broadcast. Totally fascinating piece about power, the power of the NFL, power of broadcast television in the NFL, and I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation. So first up, Mark Fainer-Rawada. Then we go to Shannon Spake, who is um, very, very familiar to NASCAR uh, viewers. She, this year, was named the host of Fox's NASCAR race coverage, which means she'll handle all the anchor duties for the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series and the NASCAR Xfinity Series. She takes over the Chris Myers position. So a huge, huge position for Shannon, basically the uh, preeminent uh, host of NASCAR in the U.S. And we have a conversation about that and her career. Also some fun stuff. She's a massive Howard Stern fan, and she's also an endurance racer doing uh, half Ironmans and just ran the New York City Marathon. She's probably the fittest person at Fox Sports. Uh, so that was cool to talk to her. And then we finish up with Jeff Gluck. Uh, on this NASCAR-centric episode, one of the foremost NASCAR reporters of the last decade or so. And he is uh, he is doing his entire job via crowdfunding, uh, via Patreon. And Gluck's story is just fascinating how an independent journalist has been able to continue his career covering NASCAR and obviously covering NASCAR at the highest levels. So it starts with Mark Fenerowada, then Shannon Spake, and then we finish up with Jeff Gluck, all on the Sports Media Podcast. <laughs> Mark Fainerwada is an ESPN staff writer. If uh, you have been reading his work for many, many years, particularly on the nexus of um, uh, the NFL and concussions and brain injuries, the reason he is on this podcast today is the piece that dropped on February 10th, Bob Costas Unplugged from NBC and Broadcasting Icon to Dropped from the Super Bowl. That was a uh, piece that certainly in my circles got a lot of attention Bob Costas uh, on the record discussing why he was no longer hosting the Super Bowl for NBC. And Mark Fainerwada joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Mark, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure, Richard. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, obviously, as you know, this piece got a lot of attention. Media loves nothing more to talk about than media, as both of us know. And so I want to start from the beginning. Um how did this story come about? How did Bob Costas, longtime NBC employee, end up talking to Mark Fainer-Rawada, well-known ESPN staff writer? <laughs> I don't know how well-known, but I, I reached out to Bob about a year ago now. I mean, I, I just thought, you know, I, I always saw this, and I think everybody at our place saw this as much more than a media story and not even in some ways uh, isolated as a media story. I, I, I was fascinated by... You know, I knew obviously Bob had come off the Super Bowl, wasn't doing it. It had been a sort of odd series of circumstances and um, sort of press releases. And um, obviously, I knew well his career. He'd been very outspoken about issues throughout his career, including steroids in baseball, which I had done a lot of work on. And so um, I just thought it made sense, like, if, if we could get Bob to talk openly about how he managed and balanced the tension that existed between. Uh, being the face of football for NBC and um, talking about an issue that's an existential crisis for NBC's largest business partner, um, how that would work and how he managed it and what impact it might have had on his career. 
um, and, and all of which spoke to sort of the power of the league. And so I reached out to him about a year ago and said, look, this is a story we're interested in telling. Would you be open to talk about it? And, you know, fortunately, he, he said yes. He, he said, you know, look, I, I have great respect for you, 60 and OTL and the work that you guys do. He was familiar with the work that Steve, my brother, and I had done on League of Denial, and um, he said, I'm in. How many times, Mark, did you talk to Bob? For the story, this if if you if the uh, timeline is a year, that would mean uh, several significant conversations. I would imagine in terms of the reporting. Yeah, many. I mean, there's a there's two formal television interviews that happened on camera, and then there's probably you know I think we say in the story dozens of uh, conversations, many of them on the phone, um, some in person. The first interview uh, I rode with Bob from. Uh, he'd been he'd been doing a game for MLB Network in St. Louis, and uh, I re- early in the season, and I rode with him from there to Indianapolis for an event. I think it was honoring the 50th anniversary of the ABA, and so we had about three hours in a car that very first interview. And in subsequent to that, there were just tons of phone conversations, some long, some short, um, just a mixed bag. Mark, have you now that the piece is over? Um, I'll ask you directly. Why do you think he ultimately decided to talk? Certainly didn't have to, but he, he he clearly there was a part of him that wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I you know I think you'd obviously ultimately have to ask Bob a bit, but I think I, I think my sense is, you know, again I, I you know not I don't think this is a huge thing, but he said you know he knew our work and respected it, and I think he thought this was a uh, you know this would be a respectable v- a venue to be talking about this, and um, and then I think, but I think you know, largely he, you know, he's a stickler for truth and focus on truth and, and, um, speaking some truth to power. And so I think there was a part of him that, that was excited about the idea of being able to be really clear about what had happened at the Super Bowl. It had, it had come out very murky. Um, and, um, people were speculating about it and, um, you know, and I think he was interested in talking about that. And the more that, we talked about that, the more that led to questions about what had happened earlier. And, you know, I think uh, those are things he ultimately wanted to talk about too, including getting an essay rejected in 2015. So let's backtrack a little bit. For those who have not read the story, Bob Costas is sort of making the point that because of his, um, his viewpoint about the NFL and brain injuries, probably more specific because of how public he was in certain forums about that, um, the implication was that an NBC no longer wanted him to be the host of what they view as kind of a celebration of football. Right. Um, I mean, uh, you're asking how far it sort of goes back, and, and, and well, yeah. I mean, you feel, feel, feel I'll, I'll, I'll give you the mic here, and just feel free to sort of offer a synopsis <laughs> of, of of what the story is about. Sure. I mean, yeah. I, I think what happens is. You know, Bob's been with, with NBC for 40 years now, and, and his, you know, he's, he's built this, you know, iconic career um, and, and had done football, you know, back in the 90s. He, he, one of the things he tells us is early in his career, he became ambivalent about, about the sport and its violence, even before there became all these discussions about brain damage and the possible connection. So he asked off football in 1993. Um, he did do HBO's Inside the NFL, but he talked about how he justified that in his mind because it was a, a sort of more journalistic bent. He could say what he wanted. In 2005, NBC gets back 
uh, football, and Costas says he's asked by Dick Ebersol, then the chairman of NBC Sports and his mentor, to do it. And Costas says he reluctantly agrees as sort of a good soldier and loyalty out of loyalty to Ebersol. He does that for a period of time, and through that period of time, you know, obviously Sunday Night Football emerges as this powerhouse, and um, and then the issue emerges around football and brain damage uh, as far back as 2005, but really kicking in around 2007, 8, 10. And, and even as, and Costas begins to talk about this regularly, he educates himself and he talks about it regularly, even on NBC. There's a, there's an essay from 2010 on NBC, um, second game of the season after an issue of concussion related incidents where he really riffs on this. And it's when you, when you think back on it and reflect on it, it's a powerful moment in, in American television. I mean, here is the voice of, of football on NBC on the most watched program, basically asking fans to think about what they're watching and the possibility that the guys they're watching are going to end up with brain damage because they're playing football. Um, that airs on NBC, and subsequently Bob talks about this issue repeatedly um, on talk shows and sometimes on the network. Um, the first point in which there's a real moment of tension between he and the network, at least that, that he talks about with us, is 2015. Uh, in 2015, the movie Concussion is coming out with Will Smith. Costas has seen a preview. He decides he wants to, to write about that and talk about it on the air. And so he presents an essay to uh, NBC, um, to his bosses, Sam Flood and Mark Lazarus at NBC. Um, that is a very pointed attack, frankly, on this issue. And it points out that the league has denied that this is a problem. Um, and, and it ends with this very powerful uh, comment about um, we're all sort of watching this Russian roulette take place on the field. And um, he submits it to NBC. And as he tells it, his bosses say, look, this is perfect. It's well written. We wouldn't change a word, but we can't run it. And he asks why. And they say, because we're, uh, we're in competition to get Thursday night football. And Bob says it's at that point where he realizes the situation is no longer tenable for him. And he decides that um, he's going to move on from football and ultimately going to invoke this clause in which he'll end up becoming an emeritus figure. He'll uh, finish up the Super Bowl, do his last Olympics, and he'll move on uh, into a sort of, you know, more uh, spot role with NBC. He's set to do his last Super Bowl in 2017, last year's or 18, last year's Super Bowl. And um, the buildup is planned for him to do that. Uh, but in the months before that, in November, he goes to a University of Maryland symposium. And at that symposium, he now says famously, this game destroys people's brains. And while it's not different in some ways from what Costas has said previously, it's much more heightened and much more powerful. It, the quote goes viral. Um, and then Bob is honored two days later, ironically, by the Concussion Legacy Foundation, uh, an advocacy group uh, whose researchers have connected the, the sport to, to brain damage. Uh, and then he begins to sense there's a, a level of tension going on between him and the network. There's a point where uh, I think it's the New York Daily News, uh, I, I might be mistaken, could be the post, I can't remember, asks NBC for comment uh, about Bob's viral comment. And NBC says, well, Bob's opinions are his own. To which he told us, well, that's like, okay, they, they're not sure there's a link between football and brain damage. Are they not sure whether the, the earth is round anymore? So he's clearly gr sensing a level, there's a level of frustration ex existing. 
he then goes on CNN to try and sort of clear up this issue and, and defend NBC, he says. But he's talking about it again on the network one more time. So he goes on CNN's Michael Smirkanish. He talks about this issue. He defends NBC, but he talks again about football and brain damage. And within an hour, he's got a text from, he says, Sam Flood, the executive producer of NBC Sports, saying you've crossed the line. And ultimately, the message is you can't do the Super Bowl anymore. This is a six-hour celebration of sport, and you're not the guy to do it. Mark, how did you approach NBC with all of the detail and information you had from Bob Costas? You know, it was an extended process. We reached out to them um, and basic, ultimately, so initially I reached out to both Lazarus and Flood directly seeking comment, and I got no responses from either of them. So I ultimately sent a, uh, an email to NBCPR in which I laid out the story very specifically uh, with details of, of many of the things I just described and asked them if they wanted to comment on any of these specific things or make Flood or Lazarus or whether Flood or Lazarus wanted to make themselves available to have a discussion both about these very specific issues and about Casas' career at NBC. And what was their response to that? Well, it took a while to get one from them. We, we gave them plenty of heads up, and they took a while to respond. But ultimately, their response was uh, a single statement from NBCPR, which said um, that the network was disappointed that Bob, after 40 years with the network, had chosen the chosen to mischaracterize, they, they used the phrase, mischaracterize private conversations. Hmm. Uh, how do you view their reaction? I mean, I don't view it any, I mean, it's, it is what it is. You know, it's there, that's their, you know, would I have preferred to have uh, Lazarus or Flood on the record talking about this? Absolutely. I would have loved to have heard different perspectives on what actually happened. Um, but they chose to go this route, and I was frankly a little surprised, but, um, you know, I get plenty of no comments from people so, or, or statements from people. Let me ask you about something a little bit broader. Um, I, I'm a cynic when it comes to any hard truths in, in during the in-game broadcast of an NFL game. I, I think we will get uh, incredible analysis. I think even sometimes we'll get... Um, We'll get stuff about criminality issues. Now, that's obviously player-specific, not owner or league-specific. But when it comes to issues like the kind of stuff that you and your brother have reported on, uh, we just don't see it, and I don't think we'll ever see it. And I think that almost extends to these studio shows as well, where we may get it touched on in a very small, short segment, but there's never really anything in-depth. Do you think that's just the acceptance that the football fan has to have that the, those who are rights holders with the NFL in those particular forums, the in-game and the studio show, are never really going to provide us the the detail, the data, the reporting on the kind of the third rail issues of the league. Well, I mean, I think it's it's a little bit of a, I mean, so first of all, this is something Bob addressed to some degree, you know, his point about this was like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not trying to disrupt the game. I think that's not, you know, I didn't talk about steroids in the bottom of the ninth of a, of a world series game, or, um, you know, I'm a studio host with the NFL. I had the opportunity at halftime of games to talk about these things. I'm not trying to disrupt the experience. And I think, I think there's an element of that that's at play, certainly, um, for the, the 
game action or studio shows. Everybody has their, you know, roles to play. And, and there's also not the time necessarily to, to do deep investigative dives, but we have done, you know, plenty of dives where, where uh, we're breaking news and revealing information and have ended up with either on the studio shows or have seen the st- folks on the studio shows talking about um, the material we've done. I, you know, I think it's, Look, I'm not going to deny there's a there's a dance going on, right? It's difficult. It's a it's a challenging tension that exists, and that's one of the points I think in the story that we try to lay out is that this tension exists between uh, the business partners and and the league. It's it's obvious to anyone who's who's around it. I mean, there's millions and billions of dollars at play, and um and so there's a there's a a challenge around trying to talk about these truths. But in the end, I I think you know. There's there's reporters who are in a position to be able to do that, and thankfully at ESPN, we've been able to do that, and 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 um, and have not and not and not been told not to. Mark, from your reporting, how do you view the NFL's relationship when it comes to the selection of broadcasters or the broadcasters who are delivering the product? Well, I don't know that that's an area I spent. I, I mean, I, I certainly looked at and talked about the relationships and the impact on those relationships um, with a couple of folks who have experience around that. But I don't know that I came away with any insights about um, how the league is choosing its partners or impacted by, uh, by this kind of work or, or that. I think that would be for you know you to talk about or somebody else who's got a larger level of expertise looking at how the league's choosing its, its partners. Were, uh, there was a point in the story, if I'm correct, right, that Bob suggested that he should interview Roger Goodell at the Super Bowl. And if, remind right. me if I'm correct about this. Was it the league who uh, declined that, or was it NBC who declined Bob being in that role? No, it was the league who declined it. So, so when, the league, when, when NBC told Bob he was being removed from the Super Bowl, he was not pissed off. He was not like, this is shitty. I, I can't do this. He was like, uh, uh, you know, or mad at the network or anything. He said, great, that's fine. I understand it. I'm sort of relieved. But what he did say is he recognized that there was going to be a potential PR problem for everybody. And he, uh, and he also realized that, like, look, I'd like to do something. You've got a six-hour broadcast. Why don't we solve this issue by me interviewing Goodell? And so uh, – NBC made the request to, to the commissioner's office to interview Goodell, and it was rejected by the league. And, and Bob, you know, talked to us about that rejection. I, I, you know, I asked him, what's your view on that? And, you know, he said two things. One is he doesn't have any idea what those discussions were like, whether, whether NBC said to the commissioner, will you do this? And the commissioner said no, and they said, okay, thanks. Or whether they, as he said, could have pressed him and said, look, we pay million, billions of dollars to you to air the Super Bowl, the least you could do is sit down with us. He doesn't have any insights to whether what that conversation was like. The other thing he said was um, about this issue of, of the commissioner's office declining to be interviewed uh, during the Super Bowl. He said, look, I mean, I, I, this is an unusual relationship, I think, where the, the buyer is continually flattering the seller. And I think his, his quote, and I, I can't sp- say it as well as he did, but like it's a ridiculous situation where basically we're having to you know, pull up the Brinks truck. And if we didn't bring you the denominations and the correct ones, well, by God, we'll go back and bring you the 20s and 50s that you want. And we'll wash your car if we'd like to, if you'd like us to. So um, I think he recognizes the power of that better than anybody. And, and I think fortunately for us, he was willing to talk sort of openly about it. 
All right, a couple more here, and you may not be able to answer this, or you may choose not to answer this, but you know, <laughs> the um, there's an interesting sort of note in there about Costas coming back to the NFL, and he says he did that because he wanted to be a good soldier to his mentor Dick Ebersol. I think there's a fair there's a fair counter to that to say that um, that's unsatisfying. And if you truly, really feel this way about the NFL, why did you then come back and take money that ultimately is generated from your network's rights deal with the league? Uh, I don't know if you got into that with Bob, but I think you know there are going to be some out there who are going to say it's a little bit of a hypocritical stance to come back to the league the second time when he did. No, we did. We did talk about that. And I think Bob's position is, Look, I have a role, I have a job that affords me the opportunity to, to, to in some cases, say, speak my mind and offer some thoughts and opinions. The NBC has given me that. And rather than run from that, here's an opportunity to tell some hard truths and make people think about this. And in his position, whether you think this is, I mean, some people may think this is maybe not naive, but, but Pollyanna-ish is like, it's good for NBC. That This is what the network needs to do to lend itself credibility on this issue. It can't ignore it. And so I'm going to talk about it and uh, I'm going to be around football. And so I'm going to do this for the network. Uh, and, and at the same time, I'm not going to shy away from things I think, you know, I think people will judge it for however they do. And, and, you know, I think Bob certainly has concerns about how people will view him, but, um, but, you know, I think as many people who view him that way, there's probably considerably more who, who say they appreciate the fact that he was willing to speak out. Yeah, and I do. I, I, I tend to side with Costas here, and I appreciate that thought process. I do wonder if his bosses uh, would feel the same way um, <laughs> on that, to, to be honest. Well, clearly, so, clearly they didn't, ultimately. That's, that's right. Um, all right, so here's the final thing. This is a pretty fascinating story in terms of just um, your own network. And the network, you know, ESPN sort of going for it in terms of doing a story that ultimately is um, – it's going to tick off one of its competitors, but also it's going to tick off one of the people that it's um, that it shares the rights or the media rights for this league. Uh, for this story, did um, did your bosses have to eventually give the heads up to ESPN top executives like uh, Jimmy Pitaro, who um, Marcus has been reporting, as you know very well. Uh, are tr- have been trying very hard over the last year to um, to better their relationship with the league. So I'm going to answer this absolutely and directly, but I'm going to give you a little grief first. Okay. So are you going are you are you going to recall your James Andrew Miller conversation from about a month ago, in which you said you had never expected the Fanaroos to do another uh, investigative piece that, uh, looked at, uh, this issue or these issues that are on the third rail of the NFL and, uh, including think, the piece we just did on insurance. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so to be, yeah, no, no, you can give me all the grief you want. I said, I think I said that I was skeptical that it would happen. I didn't say an absolute, it wouldn't no, happen. You said, I don't think it's, I don't, I just listened to it this morning because I was curious. About uh, did you? It, all right, I go ahead. And I, you said, I don't think the Fainaroos will ever do another story. I think we're in for a kindler, gentler ESPN, I believe, is the phrase you <laughs> All used. right, then I got, then I, so, I, I, bow, I, bow, I bow, I bow in deference and I take the hit and I own it. 
I give uh, ESPN and the Fainaru Broaders props. So I was, I by the way, I am happy to be very happy to be wrong on this one. So I, I, I accept, Excellent. I accept full. I, uh, I bow, you know, <laughs> I, I bow in front of you and your. If your brother was here, I'd bow in front of both of you. I, I don't. We, we, I think it's much more to the network than anybody else. I mean, we're we're hardly alone in doing this stuff, as you know. So, I, I, here's what I'll say. Like, look, I, I, the first, the the short answer is, of course, we're doing sensitive work that involves our business partners, and just like every story we've done previously before Jimmy Pataro came in place, um, these stories move up the food chain and um, and are looked at, you know, uh, by the highest levels because. They raise questions, and they're um, they're you know they're they're difficult issues because the network is a business partner. But uh, in the end, that has not prevented the work from from uh, being produced. We're still hired. I just signed a new contract, and yeah, so did Steve. And thank you. And and I think the you know the reason is because we're aware that we're able to do this work um, in a difficult situation for sure. I mean, it would be. It would be lying to say that it's not complicated. I think the story with Casas points out how complicated it is, um, and we've, you know, we've been in the thick of this. We one of the things we really wanted to do in this story, as we laid it out, was we thought it would be ridiculous to write this story without acknowledging our own issues. And so, in both the TV piece and the print piece, you'll note that we are transparent about we've had these same issues at ESPN. We, you know, Playmakers is highly talked about as having been killed after a year. Yep. Um, after the league complained, and we had our own issue around League of Denial um, and, and ESPN ending the partnership prematurely. So um, these things are all true, but it thought, as I always say, two things can be equally true in this situation. Um, it's a challenging setup for sure. It raises uh, tensions, but um, at this point, we've been able to continue to do the work and and that was true of League of Denial. The story, the book came out. The excerpts were published on ESPN. We ran clips, long clips of the documentary as it was always planned. Um, and so, in the end, the journalism has won out. And you know, Jimmy Pataro has told us in our unit that he is committed to this kind of work and committed to doing it. And you know, I think the insurance story and this story and and Seth Wickersham's unbelievable piece recently on the Browns. Um, and the, the looming piece by Scott Eden on Tim Donahue in the NBA, all of these are a testament to the fact that the network remains committed to doing this kind of work. Bill's Bengals every week on Monday Night Football, thanks to Mark Fenerato's reporting. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so, Mark, are you? will you and your brother be doing an expose on Jim Nance and Joe Buck next, or is it just Costas? Is that, is that, is that where it, it, it ends? <laughs> I think this is this is a new. This is why I'm going to ignore the question to some degree. But I I don't think like yes, it's a media story. Like you can't acknowledge, you can't get away. Bob's part of the media, obviously. But this is a much bigger story than like it's sure. Bob Costas, who's the, arguably the most iconic figure in sports broadcasting, and certainly the most decorated and is respected as we said in a way like Walter Cronkite was around you know in around news. He's that way around sports. So. You're talking about a guy who spoke out about this and, and basically sat down with us and gave us news. Um, it's not about, you know, if, if any of these other broadcasters sat down and told us that they had been stifled to do this and then ultimately pulled from a, an assignment, I, I think you would readily admit that's news. So I, I don't think we're going to go out covering all sorts of, you know, it's not a media job, it's an investigative job, and, and I think there's a component of this that was investigative. It reveals not only the news of what happened to Costas, um, but also it reveals in a very 
clear away the influence and power that the NFL wields over its business partners. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I was being, uh, I, I was joking. The story is about power. No, and, I know. And the power, yeah. and the power of the league. And that's why it's, uh, you know, the media is, uh, is a gigantic sort of subtext within the piece. But the piece ultimately is about power and the power of the NFL when it comes to these hard truths. And um, and I'm glad the piece was really well received and uh, deservedly so. Um, you you took a you know I've interviewed Bob many times. It's he's a brilliant guy, but it's a process to interview him. And um, <laughs> as you know, it surely is. Yeah, and so you I thought you guys. You played it about as down the middle as as a piece could come out as. Um, so well done. I appreciate to that. You uh, and congrats to you and uh, Steve for resigning. And I will say this because I got to take my hit on the Miller podcast. Signing you too is a great sign that ESPN uh, plans to continue to do the kind of investigative work that you and your brother and the amazing producers at uh, E60 and OTL have done. So that's that's really good news. Uh, for all of us, and uh, hopefully Bob Lee will return from his uh, 75-week vacation one day, and and we'll see him exactly. back. Exactly, we'll we'll see him back. We need on our the leader well. back for sure. Exactly. All right, Mark Fanaruwada is a staff writer at ESPN, obviously one of the foremost sports investigative reporters in this country. Go check out all of his work, but particular for this podcast purposes, it, the piece that he did on Bob Costas and NBC, obviously for this podcast, totally fascinating. And Mark, I appreciate your time. Thanks uh, so much and uh, and continued success, and, and hopefully we'll catch up soon. Thanks again for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Sounds great, Richard. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. All right, my thanks to Mark Fainer-Wada for an interesting conversation. Nice shot at me, but I, I deserve it. And now let's head to Shannon Speak of Fox Sports. In 2019, Shannon Speak was named host of Fox's NASCAR race coverage, that means she will handle all anchor duties for the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series, as well as the NASCAR Xfinity Series. That's all the pre-race shows, and she does that from Charlotte. Fox Sports has a new studio for NASCAR. Shannon Spake has been a guest of mine on the Sports Illustrated podcast, and um, she was awesome on that. And now we bring her back in 2019. Shannon Spake, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you. It sounds so good to hear you say that. I'm, I'm so excited about this role this year and, and all the opportunities that Fox Sports has given me. And, and this is a big one. You know, I've been covering NASCAR since 2004, 2005. And, and I think I've kind of done everything that you could possibly do in the NASCAR garage. And, and so I am super excited to sit in that big chair and, and to have these duties on, on Sunday. Um, and, and obviously uh, what Chris Myers has done for 18 years prior to this is it's a big seat to fill, but I'm so excited about the opportunity. All right, Shannon. So let's start there. You are correct. You're not. You're not overselling this. This, this to me is the most prominent hosting position in NASCAR. If you're a NASCAR fan, mm-hmm. it's essentially the equivalent of hosting. Uh, you know, the NFL Today or Football Night in America. Mm-hmm. So how did the, you have been part of this sport for a while? But how did this specific assignment come about? Well, I've been doing the pre-race stuff for the Xfinity Series for the last two seasons on Saturday. Uh, and I think with us moving everything into the Charlotte studios and, and obviously my presence on Race Hub during the week and, and having this role on Saturdays and kind of proving to the big bosses that this is something that I can take on, I think it kind of was a perfect fit uh, to, to make this move and, and to kind of do this. We're doing everything out of the studio here in Charlotte. I don't know the specifics that went into um, – 
to Myers deal. Um, but I know they came to me with this opportunity and, and it's, a, it, like you said, it's, it's big. I, I have, um, I, I spoke with someone this week and, and you and I just briefly spoke about me starting in production. I, I feel like I've been in TV since about 2001 when I moved to New York city, 2000, when I moved to New York city, you know, fresh out of college. And I feel like I've stepped up every single, um, every single step on that ladder and I've spent some time on every single step and I'm really excited about the climb that got me here. And I'm really excited to use all of my experiences, hopefully um, on, on this Sunday show and, and to be able to bring now the, the new studio that we have, if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely incredible, but it is a big deal to me to be on Sundays and, and to be, as you mentioned, I think Fox sports is, is, is honestly, they, they put so much stock and, and have so much, um, concern about the, the, the NASCAR world. This is a huge entity to them. And I know what a great responsibility and a great opportunity this is. Shannon, you have, uh, you, I mean, you have a very really solid career going. You've done, um, you do the NFL or have done the NFL, mm-hmm. uh, college football, and obviously you have your NASCAR roots. W- was, was there any hesitation in taking this or was there a thought process in terms of, okay, do I want to, Uh, Do I want to have this big Sunday roll, which essentially, I mean, it's not the full year, but it's pretty close, Mm -hmm. right? It's like February, February to November, basically. Well, the Sundays we do, Fox Sports does the first half of the season. Oh, the first half. Um, I think, you know what, I take that back. You're exactly right. That's right. The other stuff, the studio stuff afterwards can be February, November, but you're right. You have the first half of the year. My bad. Okay. Yeah, um, Race so, Hub goes all year long. So we do right. Race Hub all year long, Monday through Wednesday or Thursday. So I manage that right now in terms of doing that show during the week and then traveling out to do NFL. My first year with Fox, I did nine games on the NFL, and this year I did 14. And, and listen, I'm, I'd be perfectly happy to do a full season because I love it so much. Um, I was paired back up with Chris Spielman this, this season, Tom Brenneman, and the crew right. that I was with was just amazing. And listen, Richard, I mean, I'm not – I mean, there's a – like we all are in this industry for a short period of time. The opportunities that come your way, you've got to jump on them. And to be one of the people who get to cover NFL on Sundays, that is not lost on me for a second. And same with this opportunity that's come down from Sundays in NASCAR. It's, it's going to be work, but I'm, I'm also coming off the road. Um, so I'll be home. So when the race is over, I get to drive home rather than going to the airport and, and, and having my bags packed. So it's going to be a lot more work, but, but a little more manageable, I think, because I, I will be home and be able to wake up in my bed and go to bed um, every night, you know, kissing my kids goodnight. Have you thought about, you know, obviously that's a huge, huge advantage and makes the, um, makes the job really appetizing. At the same time, as you know, given that you have been at tracks, you've talked to drivers, you sort of you smelled the sports sort of straight up, you know, you do lose a little something when you're not there. Have you thought about uh, how to navigate um, the, uh, you know, the, you, the, how to navigate the absence of being at the track while at the same time having this great opportunity working Sundays? Yeah, that's one thing that I've, that I've spoken to, you know, Larry McReynolds or Jamie McMurray or even my bosses about, you know, when, when you get on a golf cart and you drive from the infield cares or you drive from the, the television compound, you know, to the Hollywood hotel, yes, you're part of the atmosphere, you feel it. And, um, and certainly that's something that I, I have to make a real conscious effort in trying to remember that we are part of that. But if you've seen this new studio, and I keep going back to it, we did some stuff this weekend from The Clash, and it kind of, I mean, you feel like with with the graphics that are behind us, and you can see the folks on the track, you can see the fans out there, you can see the cars lined up. 
I know what it feels like there. And I think my experience of being at the track or being at college football games or being at NFL games and knowing what that energy feels like, I mean, I feel like the experience that I have, I will be able to bring that to the broadcast. And the relationships are so key. I've been in that garage for, you know, for a very long time and and I have a lot of contacts on my cell phone. I have a lot of people that I can reach out to if I have questions or if I need to talk. And, and obviously having Jamie McMurray and, and, you know, Ricky Craven and Larry McReynolds and, and all of these guys, Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, who move in and out of the Race Hub studios during the week. Those are people that I talk to during the week as well and get a real sense of what's going on at the track. So I, I feel like it's something I have to keep in mind all the time in order to do um, our fa- give our fans like justice for our fans, but I feel like it's something that that won't be as hard as it might might seem not being there. Shannon, you know this: the best studio hosts in sports. Um, just not only are they really talented, but they have they figured out a way to make the chemistry on set seamless. Uh, Ernie Johnson of Turner is a great example of being essentially ego free and letting his analyst star. Same thing with James Brown yeah. of CBS. Rebecca Lowe is great at that on the Premier League for NBC, but also has her own style. Have you thought about, I know you have hosted before, but obviously this is this is the really big show here. Have you thought about mm-hmm. um, how you want to lead this group on Sunday and what kind of tone you want to set as the person who brings us in and out of that show? Yeah, I think just being me. I think that's the biggest thing and, and, and just being casual about it. You know, I'm I'm a huge fan of Clarissa Thompson. I know you are as well. I yeah. watch her like a hawk and, and kind of I think she's one of the best in in what she does on Sundays. And so I watch her like a hawk and, and, and try to obviously take some tips. I you know, the opportunity Lindsay Zarniak's with us now. I think Lindsay's over the years been someone I've certainly watched how she's handled moving from one segment to the next seamlessly. Um and, and I think just being being I think one of the things that I try to do, and I think that I've I've kind of done, um, I, I've I've moved into this role a little bit more, is just kind of being natural and being myself, and not trying to be somebody that I'm not. Because I feel like when you do that, that's when you tend to make mistakes. When you get out of your comfort zone and out of being who you are, that's when that authenticity does not come through. And um, so that's a huge thing. And I think. I'm very comfortable with the people that are sitting around me. I, I, I try very hard to spend time with them outside of that studio, outside of the desk. I've known Jamie McMurray, who's going to be with us this year. I've known him since 2005, 2006. Um, consider him a friend. And so I really try to try to make sure that I'm hanging out with these guys when we're not just on the set. But that's it's certainly, Richard, that's one of the hard things about doing a daily show is you can, I mean, it's, Every day you have to turn on that energy and you have to have that energy be ready to go for that hour or for that two hours. And um, fortunately, I have a lot of it. (laughs) So fortunately, I'm able to manage it during the week and I have a lot of energy. And fortunately, I really, really, really love what I do. And I've told people before, you cannot fake passion. And I am extremely passionate about what I do whether it be on the NFL sidelines or NASCAR. I I love this sport. I love this industry. I love working for Fox Sports. Um, And I I hope that that comes through every time that that red light goes on. Shad, you mentioned Lindsay Zarniak, and she joins you. Sarah Walsh as well. Yep. you guys are like ESPN South now, basically, as former ESPN or something. But that that leads me into this question. Um, You know, that's three prominent – 
roles for three prominent women in uh, the sports media. And so given you've covered NASCAR for a long time, how would you compare uh, – this is kind of open-ended here – but how would you compare the um, the numbers of women working in NASCAR at any position in the sports media today versus when you started in NASCAR? And in your opinion, has there been progress for women getting these roles or – has the progress just been for very high prominent or high profile women getting these roles? You know, it's funny. Um, yeah, I've covered, you know, I've covered all the sports and, and people have asked me this question. People have this idea that NASCAR is such a male dominated sport. And yes, it is because all of the men on the track, I mean, obviously they're men with the exception of Danica, you know, who stepped out um, after, you know, she had two races last season. I actually have always argued completely opposite. I think there's a ton of women in NASCAR. You walk through that media center, there's PR people, there's, uh, you know, people on the radio um, doing pit road. Jamie Little and I have been on pit road, the two of us have been on pit road since, you know, the early 2005, 2006. Krista Voda has been in the garage for, for a long time. Wendy Venturini. I feel like there's been a lot of women in NASCAR. I just feel like there's this perception that there's not. I think I have actually more women w- when I'm in the NASCAR garage than I do when I'm on the sidelines for the NFL. Um, and, and that has, um, I certainly think that the bigger roles are now being consumed with women, which I think is a huge step. But I also think that those roles are being consumed by women in other sports. I mean, 10 years ago, you didn't have two women hosting the NFL pregame shows. And, and now we do in, in Carissa yep. and Sam. Um, and, and same with the NBA with Michelle. And so I think that these roles are certainly opening up for women, which I think is enormous. But uh, one of the reasons I, I so I, I tell the story a lot. Two years ago, we were in the Daytona garage. And so I, I had the opportunity to be part of the Cars 3 movie. And so I'm standing there as they're doing a press conference. And I'm up there as the only female, um, besides the female that was in the movie, of course, the only female representative of NASCAR. And I'm standing there with Jeff Gordon and, and, um, you know, DW and Ray Everham and, and all of these men who I've respected and, and worked alongside for so long. And I was the one woman. And I thought it was really cool to be representing all of the women because whether it be wives or PR people or writers or, or people in the media, there are a lot of women in NASCAR. Shannon, what was your character in Cars 3? Shannon spoke. Am I right about that? That's right. Yeah, that's right. My kids loved it. I love that. That <laughs> must was be... like their favorite thing. <laughs> yeah, that's like mom. That's like mom of the year when you can actually get a character in a film. Totally, that's pretty good. Totally, um, yeah, that's great. That you make an interesting observation though, and I think that's fair. I think because the you know essentially other than Danica, obviously the sport is essentially male when it comes to the participants uh, and probably crew chiefs as well and pit crews. You sort of get a sense that um, it's it's male dominated, but you you make a very fair point about um, uh, about walking through the uh, the media. Center. I want to ask you a question mm-hmm. about sort of, I know you get this question a lot, and so let me just preface it by saying this obviously has nothing to do with you or your work, but it ultimately, at the end of the day, impacts you. You know mm-hmm. that the sport has been losing viewers uh, during your time covering it. Why do you think, uh, or what is your impression as to why you think NASCAR has been losing viewers, at least in terms of television viewers? 
I think sports in general, we consume it in so many different ways than we did back in the 90s. And I, and I think we cannot compare, we can't compare NASCAR to what we had in the 90s. And I think that comparison, people try to make that all the time. And unfortunately, you can't. There's too many, you know, I mean, it's every sport, Richard. I mean, we're, we're consuming all of our sports in different ways, whether it be, you know, Twitter or, or, or Instagram or just getting highlights quick. And so I think that that's a, NASCAR is a time commitment. Those folks go out there and they're camped out from Thursday to Sunday. And that just doesn't happen a whole lot anymore in sports. People want it now and they want to be able to get on with their lives. Uh, and, and yeah, that's certainly something that my entire time being in NASCAR, we've dealt with. It's funny, I, I just looked this morning and saw that our ratings for the clash were up like, I think, 3% from last year. I think that there's a lot of momentum going into this season, I think, with um, some of the changes that we've made in terms of the, the staff that we're bringing on. I think that that uh, built a lot of momentum for us, Fox Sports. And, and I also think that there are some storylines in the garage that, that could be, um, that could really kind of spark some interest. But I think we can't compare apples to apples anymore. We cannot compare what we had back in you know, 1995, 1996 to what we have now. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that we do that, that kind of um, brings our expectations down, but we do everything we can to try to, to try to increase this. I love some of the, I mean, the bar stools thing I think is, I know some people have their opinions about bar stools, but I think it's a, it's, it's a great way for NASCAR to kind of reach out. They've, they've kind of, um, done a marketing thing with bar stools, and that's going to bring some younger viewers. That's going to get some younger viewers' eyes on NASCAR, which I think is important to think outside the box. You, um, as again, as a prominent host in this sport, this is a sort of an interesting navigation. So I want to ask you about this, um, as I would ask uh, uh, people in other sports, NFL, etc. Um, how do you navigate, or what's your thought process in navigating? when there is a uh, a negative story about NASCAR. Because at the end of the day, Fox, um, NBC, you guys are your media partners. So you're, the, the hope for both of you is if the sport grows and is popular, it's going to benefit both entities financially. But there yeah. are times, of mm-hmm. course, as you know, when there are stories um, that are not positive for the sport. How do you approach that in your position as someone who uh, who might have to do that on a network that has a financial partnership with NASCAR? Well, I'm not about sensationalizing. I never have been. Like when I was at ESPN too, I mean, you know, I mean, ESPN is a news station. So when stories like that would come out, we would have to investigate those things. And I've never been, I've learned at a very young age, it's it's not about sensationalizing. It's about getting the facts and reporting the facts. And I think that regardless of our relationship with NASCAR, I think we still try to do that. And I still try to do that. Um, But I also... Listen, I got into sports because I wanted to cover sports, right? I wanted to cover flag-to-flag things that happened. And so let's tell the stories, whether they be negative or positive, and then let's cover the sport. And I'm not one to harp on negative things or, or that's, that's not my job. I don't think um, there's, there's, there's a lot of people out there that are responsible for breaking news and doing those sorts of things. Uh, we are reporting what we what we know, and then trying to. Uh, if it's a story, we'll cover it. I think from from top to bottom, we just hired Bob Bob Pockris, who is one yep. of the best in breaking news and and doing all those things in the garage. And so I definitely think that shows that we're moving in in a way that we're going to maybe explore that a little bit more. But for me personally, I'm not one to kind of harp on on negative things. Um, I'm going to tell the stories, report the facts, and then let's uh, do what we have to do. And, and then let's move on to talk about the racing. That, that's my personal 
um, opinion. Uh, it's kind of how it was at ESPN as well. Uh, again, I, I love flag to flag. I love, you know, you know, the action of the game. And um, over the years, as we all know, um, sports has moved into a lot of the news telling of sports as well. And uh, so it's, it's finding that balance, I think. Yeah, Fox has made some good hires uh, in NASCAR yeah, l- lately. Shannon mm-hmm. Pockrass is good. I like Zarniak. Uh, mm-hmm. I like I like Sarah Walsh uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, I mean, you guys have you know as a sports network have made some horrible hires elsewhere. I'm not going to ask you about those. <laughs> but uh, but in NASCAR, um, that's quality. I mean, good for you guys. It, it's it's you're making that product. I think at least television-wise, attractive. And the Pockrest one is a really good hire just because um, there's very few people who are more connected mm-hmm. to the sport as an insider than him. I want to, before uh, before I let you go, I do want to ask you about the NFL. You mentioned that you're working mm-hmm. with uh, Tom Brenneman, uh, Chris yeah. Bielman, who's fa- fantastic, and uh, yep. uh, on that team this year. And yep. now that you've gotten a little sense of this, Shannon, you worked, uh, as many viewers will or listeners will know, for a long time at ESPN doing – uh, college football, um, and so you have your roots in that sport. Now you're doing the NFL. From your perspective, from the sideline reporter position, what have you seen uh, that are the most significant differences between the sideline job in the NFL, which obviously includes the days before the game, and the sideline yeah. job in college football, which obviously includes production meetings and the days before the game? Well, you're, you're working with professional athletes, right? You're working with grown adults. And um, I think there's a, you know, you can walk up to them pregame and talk to them. Whereas I think in college, they're a little bit um, more protected by, you know, hey, we've got to set up an appointment or, or make sure that, um, that, that there's someone there during those conversations, which I, I like. I mean, you just walk up to these guys and, and you talk to them. Um, I, I love the athleticism. I, I mean, it, I, I say it all the time, like, Sometimes, you know, sometimes what you watch on TV isn't always um, 100% exciting. But for me, when I'm on that sideline and I'm watching the athleticism of, of these players, there's not a, a game that goes by that I'm not just blown away. Um, to see, you know, Julio Jones uh, sideline or, or to see some of these guys, what they're able to do from an athletic standpoint. I love working the NFL for that reason. I, I think it's been um, it's been so cool for me. Again, the storytelling I try to do, you know, when I was at ESPN, it was, I learned, um, you know, a lot of what you, my biggest thing was like, let me bring the viewers to a place where their ticket can't, can't get them. And so for me, that's what I saw in practice or, or what I'm seeing on the sideline right now. And I try to, I try to do a really good job of, of really kind of scouring those sidelines and, and bringing those stories. And, um, I just, yeah, I, I, the, the games are shorter. <laughs> the, uh, the players are faster. They're stronger. <laughs> it's been so much fun. And, and to work with Spielman again, he was actually my analyst the very, very first year that I did college football at ESPN. So I was completely green, had, had very little idea what I was doing in terms of covering the, the sport down on the sideline. And to be teamed back up with him this year has been really, really cool. And uh, I, I I adore working in the NFL because of the athleticism aspect of it. It's, it's incredible. Like Saquon Barkley's legs are really as big as they look on TV. And when you're standing next to him and you see him run down the field, you're just like, God, these guys are just amazing. Yeah, that, guy, that guy's a freak athlete. Uh, what's, the most mem- yeah. what's the most memorable thing you, uh, you saw this year or reported on this year on the sideline? Oh, my goodness. I can't remember what I did yesterday, Richard, if you're asking me this question. <laughs> 
Um. Oh God, I don't. I really. I'll I'll, get, I'll let you. I'll let you. I'll let. I'll let, I'll let you. Th- I'll let you think about that. I'll give you. I'll give you. A oh, couple how about this? Too. How about this? The kicker from Green Bay when he missed. What did he miss? The six field goals in, in our game. Oh, you. Oh, that's. Oh, you had missed. that game. Oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah that's right. I'm telling you what. The sound of that ball hitting the uprights is so much louder when it goes like four or five times. It was. Um, yeah, that was that was a rough one. And then you know, I did the game where um, the Steelers. They, I think we were in Oakland, and they. Uh, I guess they had the wrong cleats on. And I'm standing there on the sideline, and I see one of the um, the equipment managers say, "Hey, go into the locker room and, and get those suitcases of cleats." So I key my mic and I tell my producer, "Like, hey, I think they're going into the locker room to actually bring suitcases of new cleats out." And sure enough, here come three guys walking out of the locker room, dragging like rolling suitcases like on like through the end zone and uh and then of course i'm standing there going i really hope i heard what i heard <laughs> can i just <laughs> yeah, open always, the suitcase you want to be <laughs> you want to be yeah I was say you want to be right you don't want to be wrong on yeah. uh on that one when you um when you are solo on the sidelines and usually for um you know non-big playoff games of the super bowl it's going to be a single mm-hmm. sideline reporter are do you uh like do, do you walk both sidelines during the game or it, do you spend um, one half on one side, one half on the other? I walk both sidelines. Um, Alan Beswick, who did NASCAR for a really long time, yep. was best at, at ESPN. He gave me a great piece of advice when I was first starting out. Uh, you know, I kind of my biggest thing was like, how do you know where the story is? How do you know what to follow? And he just said, follow the ball. Just always watch where the ball is. And so I, I try to kind of. Like, I try to think about that a lot. Where's the story, right? If you have a secondary that's just getting blown up by a quarterback, that's the story, right? You want to go over there and see what the secondary coach or the defensive coaches are saying to these guys. Or if you have a first-year quarterback who's getting ready to get in and you want to watch his body language. We had, um, I think it was the 49ers this year. I think they were start. They pulled three guys off the practice squad. Um, uh, Max McCaffrey was one of them. And pregame, I was just sitting there watching them because I wanted to see what their body language was. They're getting into the game, the NFL game, for the very first time. They're making their first start of the season. It's week 16. And so those things, like, I try to just kind of figure out where the story is. And that's where I place myself. I remember I did an Arkansas-Alabama game one year. And um, the kickoff, they fumbled on kickoff. Alabama did. And I happened to be on the Arkansas sideline. So I just went running over to the Alabama sideline because I wanted to see Nick Saban's reaction. And so then after kind of everything settled down, I went back to walk over the Arkansas sideline. And then again on kickoff, he drops the ball. And so here I go running back over to the Alabama sideline. So sometimes it's a lot of running around, but I just try to hmm. figure out where the story, where, what do I want to see? What do I think people want to know that's happening down there on the sideline? Shannon, more cursing on a college football sideline or a pro football sideline? Huh. Probably the pro is more the, the athletes cursing and, and the and the uh, and the college is more the coaches cursing. I've seen <laughs> tablets thrown. I've seen I mean, I've seen everything down there. Um, the, the big thing I'll tell you what, the big thing with the NFL sidelines is that those kickers are down there warming up throughout the entire offensive series. I've almost been hit in the head a couple times by, by either a, a, you know, someone snapping the ball for the kicker or the kicker kicking the ball, and they do not do that in college. Um, and so uh, my girl Laura Rutledge took one for the team this year. So moments like that, I think we always kind of like we have to be a little bit more aware of, of our surroundings and just make sure that, uh, <laughs> that we're not going to get you know, drilled by you know, a, a kicker getting a, you know, kicking a ball into one of those nets.
Yeah, we saw that, that Laura one went viral, so everybody oh, saw man. that. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Um, I may have – all right, so before we get to your uh, burgeoning uh, athletic career in marathons and <laughs> Ironman competition, um, I may have asked you this when I talked to you the last time, but, you know, uh, I'm certainly uh, – uh, I've, I've certainly repeated questions before in my career many times, so I'm going to ask it again. Um now that you have been at Fox for a significant period of time, what can you give me a sense of 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 what is unique or what is different? Or maybe the better way to ask it is, uh, what are the differences between ESPN and Fox for a employee in your position? I think I, you know, I, I think I told you when we spoke last time that it, um, and this is a, the analogy really that I that I think it describes it best. It's it's like going to a family party where, you know, at ESPN, there's 500 people at the family party. And then at, at Fox, there's, you know, there's 40 or there's 35. It's, um, it's just a, um, a more relaxed kind of vibe, I think. And this has been, I mean, for me, this has been the coolest time to be at Fox because of everything that we've acquired, whether it be the Big Ten, um, you know, in Thursday night football. Uh, yep. It's, you know, the NASCAR stuff that we're doing, the new studio that we have, it's been such a time of growth and it's been really fun to be a part of the, the this network growing. There's so many great people, um, amazing people at, at Fox Sports and, and they have been so good to me in terms of allowing me to do things and giving me opportunities. Um, it's been it, it's been a great, great move for me. I, I, I love my time at ESPN. I think anybody that works for a... 24-hour-a-day network will tell you that when you're first starting off, that is the best place for you because you're getting so many reps and you're constantly doing things and you're constantly exposed to things. Uh, and, and ESPN allowed me to do that. But for me, Fox right now is allowing me to grow in ways that I I probably never would have been able to while at ESPN. Nice. You just cut a promo there for Eric Fox and uh, and Human Resources. That's nicely done. Shannon, uh, here's all right. So before we get to Iron Man, re- refresh me if I'm right about this. On your Twitter feed, you, do you is is there like a sentence that says you're a Stern super fan? Am I am I right? I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so Stern, Stern yeah. meaning Howard Stern, I assume, right? Of course, you know you're the second person that asked me that this week. I'm like, yeah, of well, course, I, like, Howard Stern. Yeah, of course. I would. I'm just. I, I listen. I'm from New York. Obviously, I've listened to Howard Stern many, <laughs> many times. So, what I'm going to ask you before we get to this is, do you have a favorite mm-hmm. whack pack character? Like whether it's Crazy Alice or Eric or uh, High Pitch Eric or you know, whoever. Beetlejuice. I like Marianne. I like Marianne like, just because she's so out of control Marianne. when she calls. <laughs> right. She just like loves it so much and. Sometimes he deals with her, and sometimes he doesn't. I actually did the Stern wrap-up show twice. I, um, I nice contact. Yeah, I know. So I was in New York. I was at the SiriusXM station, um, you know, talking to, you know, just kind of trying to get some work. I do some stuff with the NASCAR uh, station from time to time, and I was walking with Steve Cohen, um, who runs stuff there. I'm walking with him through the hallway, and here comes Gary Delabate walking by me. And any Stern fan will tell you that when you get an opportunity to see Gary, which is probably not that much, you want to scream Baba Booey at the top of your lungs. <laughs> and of course, I'm with Steve Cohen, so I'm like, I have to act like I have to act professional here. I can't, I can't do this. And uh, so uh, a, a writer here in Charlotte, when I first got the gig with NFL and Fox, he um, he interviewed me. I told him that story because he was a huge Stern fan, and he wrote about that story. And when he posted it on Twitter, he tagged Gary. Well, Gary reached out to me and kind of said, if you're a real super, uh, you know, a stern super fan, why don't you come on the wrap up show? I was like, done. 
And so I flew up there and I went on and I had a blast. And they said, anytime you're in New York, and I took them up on it. So when I was there doing a Jets game a couple uh, this past season or a Giants game this past season, I went on again. And so, uh, yeah, it's it's cool, man. You walk in there and you get to like see how I didn't get to see Howard, but I got to see his studio and stuff. And you're in the green room and um, it's pretty cool. That's nice. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Artie Lang once in uh, Stern's green room, and my only. Uh... By the way, now that I think about it, can you imagine having lunch with Marianne? You'd want to you'd, you'd, you'd want to kill yourself basically 30 minutes in. Do you think she's um, like that all the time, though, or do you think she's just like that because she gets so excited about Howard? No, no, she's like that all the time. There's no chance that that's an act. <laughs> that's that's sort of the genius of uh, of Marianne. But I will, yeah. Sean, you you will appreciate this, I think. So, um, in addition to interviewing Artie Lang once, I don't remember the story. I think it was for a Q and A for Sports Illustrated. I um, uh, they needed some media people once for the Tiger Woods beauty pageant. And so I was one of five, oh my maybe God. four, yeah, four or five reporters who interviewed Tiger Woods's mistresses after the oh Tiger Woods beauty pageant on Howard Stern. I mean, that's either the highlight or the low light of my professional career. It's the top uh, of your resume, career. isn't it? It's yeah, right but I there. did get to see, but I got to see the studio <laughs> and I got to talk to Howard on air. So that was pretty cool. I have to admit that was, it's that was pretty really awesome. Cool. Um, he's uh he's yeah. a pretty amazing i'm a huge huge fan of his i i you know you're gonna i know you want to talk about the the marathons and triathlons and you know when i go out for like a 15 16 17 18 mile run it's it's usually howard that i'm listening to i i can't <laughs> listen to music i just i have really bad like ocd when it comes to like changing music add whatever um but i i love listening to his interviews well, well richard i have to jump in here for a second because you're leaving out one major detail that your produ- what's that look? that your producer used to work for him <laughs> oh my god you did i worked on the howard stern channels i produced the scott farrell show at night so i was oh, around that so all awesome. the time and uh, yes, uh, Richard is exactly right. Marianne is like that 24 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then you would have to have lots of beverages while you're having lunch with her or dinner with her. Yes, <laughs> but well, yeah. Shannon, what I what I can do, but I would not ruin your life this way, I could very easily just give Sour Shoes your phone number and you could have Sour Shoes call you every day. <laughs> Don't every do that. Day. He's so, is he not like one of the most talented human beings in the whole world? Yes, like, you hear incredible. His, Oh, he does his Gary impersonation. Oh. Like you can't even tell the difference. His Gary, his it's, Artie, his Mad Dog, everything that he does. I mean, it's so funny because um, every once in a while, my phone will start ringing and my wife will see me keep putting it to voicemail, and she's like, "Is that Shower Shoes again?" Yep, he'll call you five times oh my in God, a row until he gets so it. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, Shannon. By the way, this, Lou has not jumped on this podcast in like fifteen weeks, so he's clearly excited about uh, yes the interview with you. Yes, you, yes, you, yes. You, 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 then we start talking about awa- Stern, you know. You've awakened. Yeah, that's uh well you've been on the you've been on the wrap up show. So that to me is uh that to me is pretty amazing. Um all right. Yeah, so let's finish cool. up first of all. Uh I love the fact that you know we have like Olympic caliber athletes like listening to like whatever Imagine Dragons or mm-hmm. hip hop uh and as Shannon Spake <laughs> is training for the Iron Man, she's listening to the Howard Stern show. Uh yeah, I'm listening to Marianne great. from Brooklyn. <laughs> all right. So here you go. You're an endurance racer. You've raced in multiple Iron, uh, uh, half Ironmans or full Ironmans? Yeah, so I trained for my first full one this year, um, and two weeks before the event was supposed to take place, Hurricane Michael destroyed Panama City, which was where it was supposed Ugh. to take place. So I was literally on my last like 100-mile bike ride as the hurricane was hitting the area. And, and obviously, the, the Ironman was, was not... It, 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 most people, they were devastated, right? It was not what was me at all. It was 
thinking about those people down there. But um, yep. instead of doing that, um, I, I actually went and did the New York City Marathon. So I fortunately I knew somebody at the Roadrunners Club because because you know it's and you know I I'm going to admit that I that I used the you know I, I used the contact to kind of get into that marathon. But I was two weeks removed, and I really didn't want all my training to go to waste because I had trained for about seven or eight months for this event. Um, and so I went and did the New York City Marathon as well, which was um, awesome. It was so, it's the second time I did it, and it was oh my god, such a great experience. Um, but yes, I've done three 70.3s, um, which are half Ironmans. I'm an Ironman ambassador. Uh, so I do an auction every year to raise money for the foundation, which, um, gives money back to the, to the race communities, the place where we race, which goes to, you know, help the folks who were devastated by Hurricane Michael and Harvey and, and, and all of the devastating things that have happened over the years. But it's been great. Three years I've been doing it. The people that I have met being part of the Ironman, like you think, you think you've got a tough because your calves are hurting or your, your quads are sore. And the people that I've met along the way are so freaking inspiring that it fills my heart cup for like the entire year and it gets me going. I love it. So, so people know this, um, half Ironman, 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike ride and a 13.1 mm-hmm. mile run. If you do a full one, you double it. I mean, first of all, doing yes. a half one, just seeing these distances, <laughs> that's incredible to me. Um, like you said, you did the New York Marathon. So here's my question. Um, you have a very busy life, Shannon. You you have a, a significant job in sports broadcasting. You have twins that you are raising with your husband. I mean, are you just one of these people who is just so schedule and regimented that you yeah. are able to fit the training in? Because, like, otherwise, your your life must essentially be like a calendar, right? How else could you train for this stuff? Yeah, it is. I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, everything is, is on my calendar. Everything is kind of um, planned out, and, and I make sure that I stay ahead and work ahead of things. Um, this is for a whole other podcast, right, Richard? So growing up, I had, very, I had zero structure in my life, right? I was raised by a single mom in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in the 90s, right? My mom worked three jobs. We had no structure. We had nobody who set rules for us or guidelines or anything. Things spiraled out of control. And so for me as an adult, having this Ironman and, and triathlons and these types of things, having this structure, I said this when I did an interview, it's sort of like my lighthouse. It's what keeps me on point. And um, my husband actually used to, um, like back in the day, he'd get, kind of give me a hard time about some of the training that, that I did. And, and granted, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning to try to get some of my training done before my kids get up. You know, it, I'll split up workouts so that I can get them off to school um, and then get back and do my workout. I have a, a little couch in my office if I need to take a 10-minute nap before I get into, um, into makeup. Um, because sometimes, as we all know, just 10 minutes or 15 minutes does like a, a, a whole, you know, it does, it does a great thing for you. It just kind of refocuses you and gets you going. Um, but I manage it all because I, I, my husband realized that I don't do it because I want to. I do it because I have to. I love it so much, and it, it is what it keeps me focused and keeps me doing everything else well, I think. And so um, mm. I've, been, I've been blessed to find the Ironman because not only physically has it helped me, but it, but it's like I said, the people that I've met along the way, there's, there's a, there's a brother duo. They're the Ryan and, and Brent peace. They're from the Atlanta area area. Um, uh, I'm sorry, Kyle and Brent peace. Kyle is in a wheelchair. He has, um, spastic, um, palsy of some sort. And his brother drags him in a boat by swimming, pushes him like a, 
in a bicycle and then pushes him in a wheelchair for the entire Ironman. And like I said, I'm going to feel sorry for myself because I'm tired when these two are out there doing stuff like that. It's um, the people that I've come along with inspire me, and um, I've been very blessed to be part of it. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and that's really just really, really impressive, the dedication that you have Thank uh, you. towards this. Uh, uh, as I said at the top, Shannon Spake this year was named the host of Fox's NASCAR race coverage, handling all anchor duties for the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series. That's the big Sunday show. NASCAR Xfinity Series races uh, pre-race show. That'll be done in Fox's brand-new studio in Charlotte. Uh, Shannon also is part of Fox's NFL coverage, and she'll have, um, you know, a semi-full calendar of games next year. Are you doing college football as well uh, this coming no. year in 2019? Okay, so you're out of I anything know, else? I but I did one college basketball game, so I was able to oh, wow. – they, they offered me three this year, and unfortunately I needed to take a couple weeks off with my family between NFL and, and NASCAR coverage. So I did one. I did Seton Hall, Villanova, which, yeah, I mean, listen, Jay Wright is <laughs> – Seriously, one of the best human beings ever. Um, and I love college basketball so, so much uh, that if I can do even one game a year, it's, it's, it's worth it. Nice. One college basketball game. We got the Jim Nance schedule. I respect that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I win. <laughs> he, does the tur- he does the tournament, though, we know. All right, Shannon, listen, yeah, you, are always, uh, you are always great to come on. Uh, you're the only person I've ever met who's a Stern super fan as well as a uh, Iron <laughs> Iron Man runner. Uh, maybe there are others, but that is a rare, rare duo. And uh, mm-hmm. and I have great respect for your career and uh, and congratulations. Yeah. That's a huge, huge uh, uh, role that you're taking on. Essentially, the preeminent hosting role in NASCAR. So that's very, very cool. And uh, and hopefully, I'll catch up with you again in a couple of months. But best of luck and thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate the time. All right, my thanks to Shannon Spake for. Uh, our conversation about Fox Sports and uh, as well as her love of Howard Stern and uh, endurance racing. And now let's turn to someone else very prominent in NASCAR, writer Jeff Gluck. Jeff Gluck is one of the foremost NASCAR reporters of the last decade plus, and he now covers the sport via crowdfunding, which we will discuss here. If you are a NASCAR fan, you are certainly familiar with Jeff's work and voice, one of the most prominent reporters in that space. And prior to his current uh, role essentially as an independent reporter. He worked for USA Today for many years. And Jeff Gluck joins us on the Sports Media Podcast. Jeff, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really honored to be on here. Um, I, I listen to these a lot, especially when you have um, reporters from other sports, be reporters, you know, doing like an NBA roundtable or an NFL person saying, okay, who's good to talk to and how do they do things? I think it's uh, that's really fascinating for me to hear how things go in other sports. Um, so I, I really appreciate this resource, and I'm, I'm really happy to be on. Now, Jeff, those are nice words. As long as you never use the word honor in this podcast again, well, we can move on. Um, so, <laughs> uh, let me know, let me, so, so let me sort of give the listeners a bit of a breakdown as to where they can find your stuff. On jeffgluck.com, you post stories and analysis and interviews. You have an email newsletter you obviously have a very popular Twitter account for NASCAR fans, race updates, breaking news, other information. There's a Facebook page where you post updates. You have a, your own podcast called the Untitled Jeff Gluck Podcast. There are YouTube elements to your uh, work. You obviously appear on SiriusXM NASCAR Radio. And all of this is possible from people supporting your 
um, your Patreon page. That's how you're able to travel to races. And as you uh, note, that's how you pay your groceries. You did not start off, Jeff, um, thinking that this was going to be your career at this moment. You are a quote-unquote mainstream reporter working for a very mainstream place in USA Today. So this is where I want to start with you. Um, how did you get to this position? When did the when did the leap to being in crowdfunding and letting people fund your career, how did that come about? Yeah, it's kind of funny because sometimes I'll get, I feel like, you know, maybe college-age kids and, and they're, you know, looking for a digital career or something. They're like, oh, man, you know, how do I how do I get to that? Like, how, do I just start a Patreon thing? And I'm like, um, actually, I came up through, like, the traditional route with newspapers and um, kind of, like, went my way up to old-school sports journalism ladder, so I'm not sure uh, exactly the right advice. But in, in my case, um, yeah, I was at USA Today. Um, everything I felt like was going really well, and I probably would have stayed there. Uh, a while until, you know, until they didn't want me anymore. But um, my wife, she's something called a child life specialist. She works at a children's hospital. And getting those jobs at times is somewhat similar to the difficulty of getting a sports writer job where, you know, a lot of us out there, you know, our first jobs were not in the location where we thought. My my first job was in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. Um, You know, not somewhere I'd ever lived or knew anybody. But, you know, you go where the jobs are. And, um, in, in our case, uh, my wife was just about to start um, doing her internship and then, um, getting ready to take her first job. So I, I had approached USA Today about relocating and, um, they told me, you know, I, I can't relocate, which was really surprising to me at the time. I, I just assumed that I could just because, you know, like NASCAR, yeah, a lot of it is, I was living in Charlotte. I should back up and say that a lot of the teams are in Charlotte. Uh, most of the teams and um, but you know the, you don't really talk to people there you know it's it's not like you're going to the race shops all the time you know most 90% of the job or whatever is, is done at the racetrack each week so um, I get my content and do my reporting typically you know at the track so I just assumed I could travel from anywhere USA Today you know felt differently about that so it, it was sort of uh, you know became clear over over several months like okay well you know, I'm either going to have to tell my wife, no, you can't go help, you know, sick kids in the children's hospital and pursue your dream. Um, or, you know, we're going to have to move and I'm going to have to figure out what I can do. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really, really, really fortunate that um, I had enough of a Twitter following to even attempt something like this. I mean, I think that's sort of a big, you know, when I talk to people about it, like, you know, if, if you're not... Um, if you don't already have that base established, it's, it's going to be tough. And I think that's sort of, you know, we've all learned that over the last few years here in sports media, but the one of the biggest benefits you can have, whether it's getting another job or going out on your own, is having sort of that mobile audience that you can take with you. Because I think for the most part, you know, your audience doesn't really care where you're writing. Um, they're going to follow you. I mean, Richard, you've, you've had something similar. You're with your Twitter following, following you to the, to the athletic and, I, I think that it's uh, we've all seen the benefits of, of having that following. Um, so I felt like, you know, I, I could maybe try something like it. I I didn't know what to do. I didn't, you know, I've seen people, uh, you know, there's that DK Pittsburgh sports website out there, and he does um, subscription style. I felt like I shouldn't go subscription route because, you know, a lot of NASCAR fans, 
Um, they're very blue collar. They don't have necessarily a ton of disposable income. So to put everything behind a paywall, I'm like, I don't know if that's going to work. And, you know, I, I, I just feel like maybe it would be better to go the, the Patreon route. Um, I was desperately trying at the time to see if any sports writers or journalists were on Patreon. I couldn't necessarily find any, but I'm a huge fan of the TV show Survivor. And there's a, a guy who does Survivor podcasts, um, and it's called Rob Has a Podcast. And I was a, a patron of his. You know, I, I would listen to the podcast every week, and he'd say at the end of the podcast, hey, if you're interested in becoming a patron, uh, here's how you can do it. You know, it's a free podcast. And I'm like, well, I've listened to this enough. I'll I give this guy five bucks a month, you know, I'll support it. And I don't want it to go away. I, I enjoy it. It's free entertainment. So I thought, well, I wonder if people would consider doing that from like a journalism model or a journalism standpoint for, for what I do. Um, I really was not sure it was going to work out. I thought it was maybe 50, 50. I had actually just gotten a, a code from a Uber driver because I, uh, to drive Uber. Cause I thought, well, this is not going to work when I launch this, so I'm going to have to do some side gigs. Um, I, I was definitely sure that, like, you know, for the first year, it was going to be really, really tough. And But for whatever reason, like, the day I launched it, by the end of that day, like, the response was such that I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. It's going to work. And um, it's been it's been going ever since. So, I mean, this is like, I don't do any freelance stuff. This is 100% of my job. I don't have any advertising. Um, it's just completely funded by readers and my podcast listeners. So, um, I'm very, very, uh, fortunate and lucky. Jeff, um, when I checked the, uh, Patreon site yesterday, you had, uh, 1,139 patrons. Is that, is my math or checking on that roughly correct? Yep. And, uh, okay. I'm, I'm, that's, uh, the highest it's been actually right now because with the Daytona 500 coming up, typically NASCAR fans are more engaged at this point. Um, so I'm, I'm, that's that's the peak. Usually it's been around 1,000. So to have uh, over 1,100 right now, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So my question for you is, who are the who are your patrons? Uh, you know, obviously, I, I don't want you to give specific names, but just give me a sense of who these people are who are, who are supporting this. Yeah, I mean, it's honestly just... Uh, well, first of all, I, I guess I should back up. Um, for the last, uh, actually, 10 years now, I've been doing um, tweet-ups before each NASCAR race. And um, I meet, I, I just, you know, say, hey, uh, I'm going to be here before the race. And uh, another journalist, Bob Pachris, who's now with Fox, he comes out as well. And sometimes we'll have drivers come out or, you know, crew members or something. And, and it's just low-key and casual. But, you know, you, you always see people tweeting at you. Uh, as, you know, reading your stuff or saying love that and uh, or hated that, whatever. And it's it's so nice to put a, a face with the name. So I, I, that's just the opportunity that I like. To, you know, we're probably around the country anyway, so we're typically once a year going near a lot of these people who are on Twitter and, and engage with your content. So I just want to meet them and say hi and see what's up. And um, so I, I kind of know, like, a lot of the names, actually, um, just from interaction on Twitter over the years. Some, some of them are, are like people I hadn't heard of or have, have never met at tweet ups even now or just people that don't go to races. But a lot of them, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, that, this one guy pledged 10 bucks and, you know, I see him every year at, at the Bristol race. Um, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's, 
as far as I know, unless they're using the fake name or something, no, no drivers are pledging, which um, I'm actually kind of relieved about because I feel like that would create an ethical dilemma, um, you know, sort of like a thanks but no thanks type type thing. But um, yeah, it's it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of a, a weird because you, you, all, you know, I think I have like close to like 180,000 profile or something, right? And, and I have a thousand patrons, as you mentioned, and that's enough for me to have a living and travel to all the races and, or, you know, the majority of the races. And it's like, it doesn't take that many people to make it work. Even, you know, if it's, it's five or $10 donations per month. And, um, you can, you can do it off a, a relatively small number of people who are just passionate about uh, what you do. That's interesting. Are there any patron, uh, patrons who have decided to just really kind of break the bank? They just, they love this content and they're like, Jeff, um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to throw this number out there. Uh, I'm going to give you $500 a month because I really want this enterprise to continue. Um, no, the, the top one is uh, $100 a month. Um, when I first launched it, I actually had a tier, you know, that was $100 a month. And I was like, you know, I, I don't think people will, will go this high. And um, I think about like 10 people did uh, within the first couple of months. And I was like, wow. Um, and and well, I think while that's really good, and obviously, I mean, those people are, I'm very appreciative with them. I, those people, like, you end up, you're so grateful to them that you end up, like, texting with them a lot. And, and I'll go hang out with them at races and stuff. Um, it, you know, it, and it's, I, I appreciate those people. But I think, that, you know, longer-term job security, just like in anything, the, the more uh, sort of a cushion you have, um, the more spread out, I think the better it is. So. Um, I've actually kind of taken down that tier and sort of lowered the tiers because I would rather have like a lot of people signing up at five and ten dollars um, because then if somebody deletes, which happens, I mean, people will get mad at an opinion or they'll get mad at whatever or they'll say, oh, their financial situation might change or, you know, they'll just say, hey, I did it for a while and I didn't intend to do it, you know, long term. So when those people delete, you know, if it's if I had a whole bunch of high dollar donors, I'm taking huge hits, and I'm like, oh crap, I got these plane reservations for this race, and now I'm like, you know, I don't know if I should uh, can afford to go to that one. Um, so it's it's sort of better. Maybe it's sort of like the bed of nails that you know, like a, a magician lies on or, or something, where it's just more spread out. Jeff, basically, is it that the donations pay for travel, housing? Uh, maybe food and beverage on race weekend, or does it also then extend to your week? You know, whether uh, you know, just sort of your day to day expenses, your research that you have to do for pieces that you write. Where, uh, where the the majority of the funding? How would you break it down in terms of where does it go? Um, you know, honestly, the majority of it's like for my daily life, like rent, food. Uh, I have a four month old. Um, that's, that's really the majority. My wife's job, you know, uh, it's, it's great, uh, you know, rewarding for her, but financially, um, aside from having health insurance, which is obviously a big thing for everybody, um, you know, it's, it's not a, it's not a high paying job at all. So, um, it's, we're living off my income and we're living off the patients. So pretty much the priority first is, is to pay rent and then see how much leftover I have for travel. Um, I'm not trying to, get rich off this is something that just I enjoy doing and I feel loyal to these people to be honest and and feel like you know they've they've stepped up to 
to help me out in, in what I want to do and, and what my family, you know, giving me the freedom to do this. So um, I just want to get out there as much as possible and show them that I'm spending their money, you know, to go to the track and, and to meet them and at, at tweet ups and um, things like that. I don't, I don't want them to think, well, he's just, you know, sitting at home and, and counting up the dollars. Like I'm trying to get out there as much as I can um, just to, uh, just to make sure that I'm, I'm showing my face. Are you at every race uh, or every sort of Sunday race on the circuit? I go to um, about three races a month, typically. Um, er- early in the season and late in the season, I'll go to a lot. But there's sort of a midsummer lull in NASCAR, and you know, it's just uh, it's just a lot to do the entire schedule. I've never done it, even even at USA Today, I did with you know about 30 races a year, um, and there's 38 on the calendar. So I think I did like. Uh, 28 or 29 events last year. Um, and I also do like the Indy 500 and things like that to mix it up. But, Hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's a grind to do it every week. I want to, before we get to the sort of the state of NASCAR, um, I want to, one of the sort of interesting things about your position is that access obviously is vital for you. You know, you got to get credential to these tracks to ultimately get, access to the drivers, access to the crew chiefs, pit crew, access to the decision makers. But you don't have necessarily the, um, how do I phrase it, like the protection of a big brand if NASCAR sort of dislikes something you write. It's a lot harder to bully, you know, uh, USA Today or Sports Illustrated around than single independent operator. Um, have you sort of thought about the calculus of uh, – like, like I, I, you know, I, I have great respect for what you do, but are you, do you think you can be as fearless in your position, given that you are relying on NASCAR's access to get into these places? Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been a little bit more nervous about it. Um, but now I feel like, you know, NASCAR, you know, as, as we'll get to is, is not in the best place. And, um, Media-wise, you're looking at a lot of these media centers being fairly empty compared to what they were. Um, I believe there's no more newspapers left in the country that cover NASCAR on a full-time basis uh, anymore, including USA Today. I think they've, since, since I've left, uh, there was two more beat guys there who um, were cut. The motorsports editor was, was moved off the beat and things like that. So um, the Charlotte Observer only does a handful of races now. They used to be at every race. So... Um, you know, if NASCAR was going to be mad enough at me that they were going to be like, you know, don't come back, um, I, you know, that that's, you know, honestly, that actually might be okay because the the fan wouldn't be so mad. You know, you might get sort of like, oh, you know what, we're gonna people who weren't pledging before, maybe they'll be like, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna support this guy because he's standing up against the man or something. Um, you know, I I, I don't want to be in that position, but um, I I want people to think I'm fair and and you know. Yeah, you always get people that say, "Oh, you're you're in uh, you're too harsh on NASCAR. You're too critical of NASCAR." And then you get other people in the very next tweet saying, uh, "Why are you kissing NASCAR's butt?" So um, I think that's that's kind of where I want to be. I don't want people to think that I'm one or the other. But um, if that did happen, you know, I I guess I'd just deal with it. But um, it's it, it is a risk like everything else. So Jeff, I want to talk about the state of NASCAR. I mean, just even hearing that no newspaper in the U.S. is sort of covering NASCAR full-time is just, it blows my mind. Um, so to for the purposes of sort of our discussion, 
I'll just give you sort of a quick background. Um, I, I've been to seven races in my life, and th- those came when I was at Sports Illustrated. I had a eight-week assignment or nine-week assignment where I went to seven tracks. We did a gigantic NASCAR poll of uh, fans, and like my assignment was basically to talk to people in the RVs and to hang out where people were uh, traveling to for the weekend. It was an incredible glimpse of the sport. It changed my perception of what I thought a NASCAR fan was. You know, as a growing up as a New Yorker, I didn't really have any kind of sense, probably other than stereotypes, but that, that trip blew my stereotypes out of the water uh, from, you know, I met PhDs who were traveling to NASCAR. You know, I met people from all sorts of places in the country. I met wine drinkers from California, so it, it was amazing just because it, it, it blew up my perception, which I really appreciated. But the one thing for my filibuster here, Jeff, is when I covered this, and I think it was in the maybe 1999 or 2000, I don't remember the date, NASCAR was so hot. And the idea that this sport wasn't going to blow up was impossible to me. I remember my buddy Lars Anderson and Mark Bechtel were covering it. SI was putting out these massive magazines. It felt like the sport of the future, like on steroids. And now in 2019, like whatever I covered back then just feels like it's gone. And it's not to say that millions don't watch it because, you know, three or four million people still watch it a weekend, but it changed. And I wonder just from your perspective, uh, why did that happen? Why did the sort of the media, at least in terms of a lot of the mainstream media, abandon the sport? Because it seems like they clearly did. Well, I think... um you know, as far as from a media perspective, you know, so much of it is sports editors looking at uh, the bottom line and, and they're dwindling resources and being like, all right, well, where, where are we best served to, to have our reporters? And, you know, as as the, the stands got more and more empty and the ratings kept going down and down, um, I think that was, you know, a, an easy decision, an easy cut for some people in some ways. Um, because it's like, well, look, I mean, we can take AP and um, are we really, do we really need our own guy covering this nationally? Um, and, and it was probably like that, you know, it's probably like that for golf and, and some other sports, but I think honestly, like NASCAR is so much more, uh, similar to golf than, than people have given it credit for in, in tracking the demise because, you know, you, you've lost, uh, and, and, you know, they were there for the, the decline as well, but you've lost some major, major star power. Um, you know, you've lost Dale Jr., Jeff Gordon, Tony Stewart, Danica Patrick's gone now. Um, and, and when you look back at it, you know, like I, I would watch golf pretty regularly myself, you know, as a sports fan. But, you know, over the last couple of years or so, with Tiger not being as relevant, you know, I, I caught myself not watching as much, even the majors. I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'll watch on Sunday if somebody's in contention, but I, I wouldn't really watch it. And I think the same thing kind of for NASCAR at this point, like the star power of the guys who are left, um, I think a lot of mainstream sports fans would be challenged to name even one NASCAR driver. I mean, I don't know. People probably know Jimmy Johnson. He's done seven championships. Um, Chase Elliott is the new most popular driver. He's the son of Bill Elliott, who was a longtime racer. Yeah, Kyle Busch is out there. He's he's one of the most aggressive and talented guys we've ever seen. But I just don't know that, you know, if you could walk. I live in Portland, Oregon. You know, if I could walk down in downtown Portland and be like, Hey, name one NASCAR driver. And people probably say Jeff Gordon or Dale Jr. But nope, sorry. Yeah. You know, I just don't know if, if that's there. So I really think, feel like a lot of it has to do with the star power 
And then NASCAR was also, at the time, chasing a demographic of when it was blowing up, that mainstream sports fan was so, so, so attractive to them. And they were doing all sorts of things. Like, they're, they're one of their most traditional races was the Southern 500 at Darlington, which is in, like, rural South Carolina. And they moved right. that race on Labor Day weekend to Fontana, which is near L.A., and they tried to have this whole marketing, you know, Hollywood campaign, and, you know, we're going, we're going to L.A. And, I mean, you know, looking back now, it's like, yeah, of course I didn't think that played with traditional NASCAR fans. You're taking their biggest, uh, you know, one of the most traditional races and moving it to L.A. People are like, they were flipping out. And so a lot of people abandoned it and never came back. So sort of the confidence of those two things, I think, are, are the biggest contributors to it. How much do you think a factor is in terms of ESPN, which for so long has been the most dominant sports brand in this country, not um, not paying? I know that they were they have been at times part of the NASCAR, uh, you know, been a NASCAR media rights holder. But generally speaking, if you watch ESPN in a 24 hour cycle on all these different shows, you're not getting any NASCAR. Maybe I mean, you'll get it on the Sports Center on the day of the NASCAR's big race. But as a general rule. NASCAR doesn't exist on ESPN. How much of that is a factor in terms of where the sport is right now in the U.S.? I think it's it's somewhat, but NASCAR was already in pretty bad shape, sort of like I think when ESPN left. I mean, the last couple of years of ESPN broadcasting it and being a, a ES, uh, NASCAR partner, I mean, it was, it was sliding downhill to the point where I think they were like, I don't know if we... You know, and, and it makes sense in some ways. And, and for NASCAR, like, as bad as it's been to not be part of that mainstream, and, you know, now ESPN has, has eliminated sort of like their last full-time uh, NASCAR guys recently. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's like the, the TV deal that NASCAR signed with NBCSN and FS1, like, the, the billions that they got from that, that is like single-handedly wrapping up the sport through this downtime. Um you know, tracks right now, the racetrack, they're making uh, as much or more money than they've ever made, despite the attendance decline. Because, you know, over two-thirds of their money is coming from the TV deal, which is the highest it's been. Um, and, and that money is guaranteed, I think, through 2024. And it has a slight increase each year. So, and, and they signed this deal, you know, uh, before the, the downturn got super, super severe. And you know, NBC and, and Fox are, are still paying. So even though um, it would have been nice to be on ESPN, I think, for NASCAR and be part of that conversation, especially, you know, when you're talking about getting fans and getting people watching all that stuff, the money that's coming in still, uh, even through this time, is I think, been huge for NASCAR. It's interesting. Um, NASCAR's Cup Series last year averaged 3.3 million viewers uh, across 33 races on NBC, Fox, NBCSN, and FS1. That was down from 4.1 in 2018, um, 2017 and then down from 4.5 million in, um, in 2016. So th- those, are going, those numbers are going the wrong way. It, um, it was interesting to me, Jeff, because I remember being on an NBC conference call, I think, where NBC was sort of boasting that they thought they had the marketing and firepower to get an increase, and that didn't happen. They got the exact opposite. Is there anything you see out there that could be a catalyst to turn this around, or do you think we're looking at try like hell to hold that base around three million as long as you can, and there'll ultimately be slippage? But you're just trying to basically hold the base and not have everything bottom out. I mean, I think a, a year of 
just relatively flat uh, would be a huge win for them. Um, and, and I think, you know, they've sort of had leadership changes now at the top where they're, it sounds like from, from what you're seeing come out in, in various comments and reading through the lines, reading between the lines, um, they're, they're, they are going to focus on that core fan now. You know, there's, there's sort of been this thought, I think, with NASCAR, even up until, you know, a year or two ago where they're like, well, we can still get that mainstream fan interested or we can still attract that millennial to, to give us a fry and stuff. And I just feel like, man, I, I just don't see it. I mean, you're not going to get people who have never been NASCAR fans at this point uh, to, to sit in front of a TV for three hours and, and watch the cars go around the circle. I mean, you just, it's, it's a tough sell. I think the, the way to, to do it is to build a, an entire new generation of kids, you know, get kids in, in, involved in elementary school, which they're doing. I mean, they're, you know, like STEM programs, link NASCAR to that, get kids to the track. And then once they grow up with it, that's something. Um, and then, you know, just get in general, just try to get people to bring their friends to the track, or whatever, because once you see it in person, like, like if you experience, it's a whole different thing. I, I was the same way. I mean, I, I kind of hated NASCAR growing up, honestly. I, I thought it was really stupid. I grew up in Northern California, so we didn't have any NASCAR exposure. Um, my first job in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, like I mentioned, NASCAR country, and they're like, hey, we're going to send you to a race. I'm like, oh, God, really? You know, but, you know, I, once, once you go, you're like, oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. Um, but I think, you know, there was such a, a, a greed involved throughout the entire industry when everybody was printing money. They're like, you know, we're going to challenge the NFL, which seems preposterous now. But that was a real thought, like in, in 04 and 05, like, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go match the NFL. We're going to take some of their viewers away on Sundays. Um, so I think finally that realization set in. They're going to focus on the core fans who are left, try to do things for them. They're going to shake up the schedule, apparently. You know, do, do things that, that get back to what the core fans are asking for, and hopefully that can retain some of that audience and make those people happy. You are, you are correct on what you say, and again, I'm sort of living proof, is when you actually go out and see it, it's amazing. It, I mean, now admittedly, I had a press pass. I could walk through uh, the garage I was able to sort of see the sport from close up, which was amazing. But it really is kind of like a very, very cool experience if you are there. One last thing on this, Jeff. I understand for sure you want to sort of you want the core you want to sort of ha- get some buyback again from the core fan and to um, and to make sure that the core fan feels served by the product. Uh, demographically, the U.S. of course is changing. Uh, far more people of color in uh, the United States. Do you, does NASCAR, um, I would, I would say the answer is yes, but how is NASCAR trying to get more people under the tent? There is, it seems to me to have a two pronged approach to take care of the core fan at the same time. I think you have to get young people and particularly young people of color to sort of get interested in your sport. If you want the sport to be around, you know, 50, hundred years from now. Yeah, I think they, they view that, you know, almost a hundred percent, not to speak for them, but through getting a driver of color or getting a relevant female driver. I mean, you know, uh, all respect to Danica, but she didn't produce the results at all. Um, and so it was sort of like, you know, yeah, you're, you're getting people to tune in to watch her, but she's not doing anything and she's finishing 20th. I mean, uh, imagine if you had a, a winning female driver or Bubba Wallace, who, um, is the first driver of color, uh, in a while, in many years uh, to, to have a full-time ride in Cup. This is his second year now. Um, if he can, 
you know, win races or run up front or be part of the conversation, that would be huge. Um, unfortunately, he's with one of the, the lowest performing teams right now. So something's going to have to change there. He's going to have to get a better ride for that to happen. Um, Daniel Suarez um, is a driver from Mexico. And, you know, I think they feel like strongly that, you know, if he was winning races and um, could start being relevant, you know, there's, there's so many great personalities in NASCAR and, and people who could be stars. But the problem is, unless they're winning, you don't really have a reason to, like, talk about them. They, you can't, you know, get so excited about a guy who runs 20th every week. So um, you've got to find drivers who match those demographics and reflect those demographics. And then people in those demographics can be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, that's somebody who I, can, who I have a reason to watch the sport now. Um, you know, I, I would hope that that continues to happen. There, NASCAR is pouring a ton of into like their diversity programs and things, but it just hasn't produced like major results yet. So here's the last topic I want to get to, Jeff, and this is kind of fascinating to me because I think you're one of the best people in the sports media to answer this question. Um, seeing your success, which makes me really happy, the fact that you're covering the sport, um, uh, you're covering the sport at a high level. I have great respect for your voice. It strikes me that if somebody wanted to use your model for, let's sort of just take the NBA, okay? Um, obviously, somebody like Adrian Wojnarowski or Howard Beck or Mark Stein, they're not going to sort of go out and do this at the moment, maybe given the salaries that they're paid. But it does strike me that someone could use the same model for a bigger sport and really have an incredible living doing it, covering the NFL, covering the NBA, covering college football via the um, the Patreon way. Do you think that what you are doing can be duplicated on the bigger sports or because these bigger sports have mainstream places that employ people that can give them you know, significant and high salaries, that it's not going to be the case and for your model, it might only work for the quote-unquote more niche sports? See, I think that it could work for a big sport, but the qualifier of that being like a specific market or a team. Because mm. if you look at it like nationally, um, I think the national equal for NASCAR is probably the size of like, um, you know, I don't know, like the Dallas Cowboys beat media. I mean, I, I haven't covered the Cowboys, so I don't know that, but um, I've covered a couple, you know, Carolina Panthers games, and I'd say, you know, Maybe the beat core for NASCAR is slightly bigger than that, but it's, it's probably the size of like an average NFL city or maybe above average NFL city. So it, it, to make it work for somebody to do this model, you're going to have to have something that people are super passionate about um, and that they don't, they don't want it to go away, right? I mean, because that was, that was the thing with me. Like, I mean, just being honest, like if this wasn't going to work out, like I was no, no longer going to cover NASCAR because I, it just wasn't going to happen. I, I was not going to be able to take a job in Charlotte and I, I needed something to make this work. So the, the sort of the agreement is if you like what I do, here's how you can support it. So, you know, um, if it's, if it is a Dallas Cowboys beat writer who is like beloved in, in the Cowboys community or something like that and already has a following and they wanted to go out on their own, I think the, the resources would be there on Patreon to do it. Um, and I, I think, you know, you could say that also for beyond sports media, like if somebody had, it was like, uh, in, in, was doing like environmental news and like super like eco news focused. And they were sort of like, 
um, doing all the stuff and people really like their coverage and like, all right, I'm going to go out on my own and do this. I think people would support it. But I think the problem is like, if it's like a national baseball beat writer and you're like, okay, I'm going Patreon model. Um, if you don't have, if you're not like a Woj and you don't have like this huge following and, and you know, you're going to, you're going to take that audience with you and promise you all this breaking news or whatever. Um, I just don't know if people are passionate about it like on a national level to do it, but they're passionate about their individual teams. So that's where I feel like it could work. Jeff Gluck is one of the foremost NASCAR reporters of the last decade plus, as he uh, described on this podcast, he now covers the sport via crowdfunding through his Patreon. Check out jeffgluck.com. If you are, if you're a NASCAR fan to me, he's an absolute uh, must read. And in this case, sort of a, a must fund. And his Twitter account as well is, if you're on Twitter, it's at Jeff underscore Gluck, I believe that's right, at Jeff underscore Gluck. Uh, you should be following him. I'm sure if you're listening to this as a NASCAR fan, you already are. But if you're a casual NASCAR fan, uh, Jeff, to me, is he's essentially as vital as Adrian Wojnarowski is in his sport. Jeff, I got great respect for you, and I'm glad we were finally able to do this um, continued success. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Yeah, like I said, oh, I, I was going to say it was an honor again, but I caught myself. But yes, it was uh, <laughs> enjoyable. And uh, no, I appreciate it and, and looking forward to listening to, uh, to more of your podcasts. Thank you for including me. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Jeff Gluck, but uh, thanks to all my guests, Mark Fainer-Ruwada and Shannon Spake. That was a really, really interesting episode. I know it's long, but, uh, but I hope you guys liked it. Um, if you like this kind of content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, uh, give us a review. Everybody else in the world asks for five-star reviews, so I might as well ask it as well. But that honestly is just how this uh, podcast uh, continues. It's an independent podcast, so uh, we need your support to make it work. Go through all the uh, Apple podcasts uh, that we have done. If you are interested in this, last week Jim Miller and I had a long discussion on Adnan Verk. And uh, first of all, thank you for listening. That that's pretty, probably coming close to record numbers there. Uh, maybe everybody from the 860 area could. But uh, but that was really, really interesting, and, and I appreciate that. But go through all the lists from Renee Young, Bruce Feldman, Jamel Hill, uh, Candace Parker, Rebecca Lobo, Adam Schefter. Um, we've tried to bring you a lot of interesting roundtables as well as interesting guests. Lou Pellegrino is the producer of this podcast, and he is excellent at what he does. I thank him for his time. Thank you to Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.